Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host and I'm joined as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? It's going okay. Just trying to survive. The state of the Luke is surviving? Yes. The state of the <laughs> Luke Union, Union is it's good. Uh, well, I'm glad the state of the Luke is good uh, to, to give away a little bit about what we're talking about this week. Um, this week, we are going to talk about Trump's State of the Union address. If Governor Deal uh, built up some orchards of opportunity during his State of the State address earlier this year, Trump's address is basically him running through the orchards of opportunity and burning them down. So we're going to talk about his speech and where that puts national politics right now and what we're headed for in 2018 with the Trump administration. And then for our second topic this week, we're going to check in on where the immigration debate is right now. We are uh, really not that far away from the second deadline, February 8th, that was put in for Congress to come up with a, some kind of a solution for the Dreamers. Trump had a pretty extensive segment of his speech devoted to immigration. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about where Trump stands, where he's finally taken a position, um, and what the outlook for this issue is heading towards February 8th. And then for our third topic this week, we're going to check in on the Democratic race for governor in Georgia. We haven't talked about the two Stacys in a little while. Um, so we're just going to check in with what's been going on in that race, um, because the primary is also not that far away. It's it's a lot further than February 8th, but it May is going to get here before we know it. So uh, we're going to check in on how things are going with the two Stacys. Let's just start with the State of the Union. So on Tuesday night, uh, Donald Trump went before the Congress to give his first State of the Union, his second address to a joint session of Congress. Uh, it bothers me that the first one is not considered a State of the Union, but nevertheless, he gave a very long speech, the third longest speech in the history of all uh, verbal State of the Union addresses the other night. And he went through a lot of different things in his speech. He he went through his major accomplishments of the first year, um, and then laid some of the groundwork for what he has on the agenda for this year. Uh, but a little bit like Governor Deal's speech, it was somewhat light on specifics with the exception of discussions around immigration and infrastructure. Um, Luke, so let's just start with your reaction. I know you um, got to check out some of the coverage of this speech. What is your takeaway coming into the day after on what Trump's speech means for what we should be watching in national politics going forward. I guess I'm just surprised by how unsurprised I am because most of the time with State of the Unions, that is an opportunity that presidents, especially those that are earlier in their administrations, will use to be like, and surprise, I have this big policy idea that I want to do, or, you know, uh, this big way that I'm trying to refocus. Uh, American policy, either foreign or domestically. And Trump really just didn't do that. He just basically saw it as an opportunity to double down on the American carnage themes that he's been hitting on since he got elected. And it seems like it's just he wants to keep hitting the same notes about how great he's making everything, but how bad everything also is. It's It's a strange, strange combination. Uh, that he's been yeah along and yeah I'm glad you mentioned the American carnage thing because that was really all that I could think about throughout the duration of this speech uh, Trump had what felt like a lot of guests come to the speech and it's typical for presidents to to bring guests and to 
uh, point them out during the speech to highlight something important about their agenda, whether it's a proposal or an accomplishment. Trump had a lot of guests, but the guests that he brought all had really distressful, uh, dark stories. There was there was a, a pair of parents that he highlighted during the section on immigration during his speech. the The two parents that he highlighted, they were the two parents. They were parents of two daughters who were both killed by people Trump alleged were part of the MS-13 gang, the the boogeyman for immigration that Trump has hearkened back to pretty frequently. And he also talked about and highlighted the presence of an ICE agent in the speech when he was talking about immigration. And it was really clear that he wanted to use the presence of these people to lay down a marker on where he stands on immigration. And it was really... I think kind of strange if you take this speech as sort of like one of the first salvos in trying to get a deal between Democrats and Republicans on immigration. Typically, if you had like a Democratic president that was trying to get get agreement with Republicans on something, some of the rhetoric from the Democratic president would sort of reflect maybe the broad values that are shared between Democrats and Republicans or reflect something that is not offensive to, to the opposite party. And Trump framed Trump used his guests to frame his statement on immigration in the form of crime and in the form of an ICE agent that arrests and deports undocumented immigrants. And I don't, it just like wasn't exactly him setting a tone for a very productive negotiation on immigration between the two parties. Well, I think what's happening here is that people are misunderstanding just how Trump approaches the presidency and how he approaches I mean, everything he's done since he started running for office, which is that a lot of people say somewhat, you know, like along the lines of what you're just saying, there's like, oh, Trump doesn't try to persuade people. Trump doesn't try to, you know, get people to come together. And it's like Trump is trying to persuade people. He's trying to persuade everyone of two things. The first thing is that Donald Trump is really good and really great. And don't you love Donald Trump? I love Donald Trump. I am Donald Trump. I love Donald Trump. That's the first thing. The second thing is everything else besides me is terrible and awful and you should be afraid of it. And that just seems to be the thing that he's trying to push and the narrative that he's trying to get everyone to get behind is just like, look at how bad things are. Because if there is any planning to this at all, which with a state of the union, I imagine there has to be at least a little bit in the fact that he wasn't just ranting off the cuff uh, up there for, you know, the third longest stay of the union. So with that in mind, I would think that his intention, and I know we were going to get with this with uh, North Korea, but I think he's probably trying to lay the groundwork, even if ineptly, for his viewpoint on immigration to get done and it's very obvious that that's counter to the majority of people's views on immigration and he's just going to keep pushing it really really hard to see if he can get what he wants out of it yeah i mean he noted well we'll talk about the specifics in in the second topic when we dive into the immigration debate but he noted that the proposal that he laid out is he thinks a moderate proposal that should win the support of democrats uh, because it extends citizenship to the entire population of the Dreamer group, the the group of immigrants that were brought here as children, many of which are now young adults. 
Um, instead of just extending citizenship to the group that is currently covered under the DACA program, which is a smaller group than the entire Dreamer group, his proposal offers citizenship to the entire Dreamer group, but it comes at a pretty steep cost. And we'll talk about what that cost is, but, but he does see his offer in this instance. He believes that it's moderate or that it's something that Democrats should be able to accept. Uh, but his rhetoric around how to talk about it uh, was definitely just like dripping with Stephen Miller's influence um, in terms of framing the entire immigration discussion about uh, crime and deportation. But yeah, you mentioned North Korea, Luke. The the other, I think, big section of this speech was his uh, discussion of North Korea. And it was received pretty interestingly among people who study this stuff, people who are experts and, and reporters on it. The, the day before this speech, there was an official that was up to be the ambassador of South Korea. Uh, they hadn't been voted on yet. Uh, but they were on the verge of, I think, the Senate considering them. And then this person was removed from contention for the South Korea ambassadorship. The person was removed because, uh, according to reporting from the Washington Post, because he had laid out in his interview or, or whatever with the White House that he was concerned about the U.S. being the first to strike North Korea, doing it preemptively. And then he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post laying out his case about why this would be a bad idea after he was removed from contention for that job. And that, in combination with the way that he used his guest from North Korea in his speech, he basically laid out how his guest had been horribly mistreated, tortured, beaten by the North Koreans when he was there, and then he escaped and, and now lives in Seoul in South Korea. He used that to make Korea, make North Korea look like a really bad actor. And that was very similar to the way in which George Bush talked about Iraq in advance of invading Iraq in the, in the 2002 State of the Union. And so a lot of people who are foreign policy watchers were really concerned about his framing of North Korea in this way um, as sort of laying the groundwork for a preemptive strike against North Korea. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's quite clear that Trump does this with pretty much anyone that he's having a contentious relationship with, but obviously it's important to note this because of the historical concerns that you just laid out that this is pretty similar to the ramp up that we saw before Iraq. But I mean, at this point, how much of this is Trump just being Trump, which is a terrible phrase, but unfortunately accurate. And I think at this point, a lot of uh, the leaders around the world have come to just expect this kind of rhetoric from him. Or, and, you know, if, if not that, then how much of this should be taken seriously? And at least in my listening to it and listening to the coverage, it seems like this is pretty much along the same lines of what Trump's been saying since he took office. On first listen to the speech, I actually wasn't all that bothered by the North Korea section. The, the part where he talks about North Korea and the fact that they're waging a maximum pressure campaign against the North Koreans was a little bit separate from his discussion of his guest from North Korea. And so I didn't really connect the two until I was reading some of the coverage after. And so it was his actual talk on North Korea was even somewhat more mild than the fire and fury uh, statement from North Korea from last fall. But yeah, I don't know. It like It's interesting because 
Trump didn't really use this speech to like set up anything else except stating his position on the immigration discussion. And he had actually released a few days ago, released his position on immigration. Um, So this wasn't actually new. And so I don't know how much of this discussion of North Korea really is the like planning aspect that uh, the foreign policy experts are afraid of, or if this was just a riff because North Korea has been in the news and, and it's one of the things that's kind of on the top of his list, but he may not actually be planning to do anything about it. I mean, he didn't really act on fire and fury uh, when he said it last fall. So, so it's hard to tell, but you know, the ongoing concern from experts about North Korea is that the what the Trump administration says, which can sometimes be separate from what Donald Trump himself says, could be confused or misinterpreted as an act of aggression against North Korea. And it's hard to tell how they're perceiving our rhetoric right now. And so I think that that is the part that is somewhat alarming is that we don't really know what Trump's intentions are. The thing that I kept coming back to was just how dark this speech was. The the descriptions of all the crime related to immigration, this the stuff around North Korea, he, he was very detailed about that and, and he used his guests to highlight his feelings on those issues. And for a lot of the stuff that he's done where he's kind of followed the standard Republican agenda, things like tax reform and appointing Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, um, he didn't really spend a lot of time on those things. He just kind of went through the laundry list of accomplishments at the beginning um, and didn't really spend a lot of time talking about the things that are where he has kind of seeded the agenda to congressional Republicans. And I thought that was interesting because Paul Ryan and Mike Pence seemed very happy behind Donald Trump. I, I think it might have been kind of a surreal moment for them to get to the end of year one to still be sitting here. Uh, given that they had no idea what was coming with the Trump administration, really. And so they seemed satisfied. But in terms of their agenda and their what they want, getting the attention of the president and being the thing at the top of his mind, um, it's definitely true that Republicans in Congress and Trump are kind of operating on two different tracks. And I think that we'll see more of that this year. Yeah, I think the other <clears throat> really big takeaway that... I've had from this speech is that Donald Trump is a Republican president. That was a big question we had coming into this presidency was like, is Donald Trump going to like do his own thing or is he going to be just a typical Republican president? And basically for all the clearly substantial reasons, he is a Republican president. All the bills that he signed, he hasn't vetoed anything that on the campaign trail you thought Donald Trump might have vetoed. Uh, He hasn't pushed for policy alternative to the Republican orthodoxy. If anything, he's doubled down and taking it further in the direction that he claimed was part of the problem. And so no wonder all the Republicans loved him and, you know, clapped for him more than seemed necessary throughout the speech because he's been a dream come true for them because he is such a supernova that brings everyone's attention to the crazy things that he's doing that it's really hard for the media to focus on anything else. And so the Republicans have been able to push through very, very conservative policy without any consequence because 
they've you know completely reshaped the tax system and have increased deficits significantly to the point where some of the budget offices are already talking about that we might have to raise the debt ceiling earlier than calculated because surprise we cut taxes and it significantly reduced how much revenue we're taking in and so just very basic things like that. I mean, why why wouldn't Republicans be really happy with him? He's done everything that they've wanted him to do and have given them cover to do those things. And what's even better is when they fail to address a big issue like healthcare, which you know, we're happy they failed to do it, but still it was something that was on their agenda and the fact that they have failed to come to a conclusion with immigration uh, it feels like from watching the news most days that the Republican Congress isn't getting as much blame as Trump is. And at the end of the day, everyone swings back around to, well, this is a failure of presidential leadership. So, yeah, I mean, for uh, positive and negative reasons, they probably are super happy with him. So I'm not surprised that Mike Pence and Paul Ryan looked happy. Let's talk a little bit about the response to this speech. Uh, the official Democratic response by, was given by Joe Kennedy. He's in the House of Representatives, a member from Massachusetts. Um, and he is the grandson of Bobby Kennedy. He, I thought that I actually really enjoyed his speech. Um, I don't typically enjoy the uh, State of the Union responses, no matter which party they come from. Um, Steve Kyle, Bashir. Kyle, how can you not enjoy them? They're always <laughs> a source of memory and fun, so fun times and great entertainment. Um, the Steve Bashir, the former governor of Kentucky, he was kind of in like a zombie diner last year. It was really strange because um, like yeah, everybody but, I mean, was just kind of sitting like, There's always him. some clear, obvious narrative about how weird it was. Well, and the thing I that was always, the thing no, that was interesting about this speech from Kennedy is it really wasn't that weird, and it's like somebody finally took the advice that I I've been saying over and over again, in that I get so frustrated that nobody thinks about the like optics of the uh, the response speech um, because they always give them like without any crowd or without any like sort of give and take between people who would like the ideas that the the speech maker is talking about um they're always given like in a quiet room and so it made it really awkward when marco rubio had to reach for his water and then he made it even more awkward with like the way that he did it and so this one was different because uh it looked like kennedy was like on the floor of like a manufacturing area it was at some like uh vocational tech um classroom I think it was and then he had a crowd I don't know how many people were there but maybe it was like 50 or 100 but they were cheering for things in his speech um, but the reason that they had reason to cheer is I thought that Kennedy struck a really nice tone um, I think there's like a real temptation in this speech and, and when you're countering Trump to like go through this laundry list of like everything that is wrong with him. And can you believe he hasn't released his taxes and he he's blocking the Russia investigation and he supported all these bad bills and he got that uh, and he paid off that porn star. I mean, like there's this temptation to just go through this like super long list of terrible things that he's done. And I thought that Kennedy avoided that temptation and made just like a very basic point. He spoke to, Donald Trump's effort to divide people in America. And he basically said that in everything that Donald Trump is doing, he's giving us a false choice. Do we choose health care for our children or do we choose 
letting in dreamer kids and giving them citizenship you know which group of people do we like better do we which race of people are we aligned with and what kennedy basically says is is that's a false choice and we don't have to make that choice we can choose both and we can do we can support both we can support our children's health care and support dreamers and support our military veterans and and everybody across the board it's you know it's a nice it was a nice counter i don't know if this was intentional but it was a nice counter to how dark trump's speech was um and it's a very clear difference between the two parties right now of democrats seem to see an america with a lot of promise and it maybe even has more promise in the last year given the way that the American people have reacted to the Trump administration and have taken to the streets and done a lot of protesting and made their voices heard. And all of that can turn into political power and good policy outcomes that that we all want. And Trump talked about how all of our cities are crime ridden and, and full of undocumented immigrants that are just like killing everybody. And, you know, it was just the difference between the two parties right now is so stark. And Kennedy's vision in this speech was a lot more compelling. I, I unfortunately have not had a chance to listen to that yet, but it seems like uh, Kennedy broke the say the union response curse and gave a gave a pretty good response from what you're saying. So I look forward to hearing about that. And um, one one question I had though um, was Kennedy's response a more because you already hit on the fact that he didn't really go down the like personal route of going against trump for you know all the very easy targets about like what's wrong about trump as a person so you can't go down that route so was it more of a big picture unifying picture for the country or was it policy specifics in your opinion it wasn't there wasn't a lot of policy specifics in it and i actually think that that worked well because kennedy is not somebody who's been rumored to be a presidential candidate and so right now among all of the Democratic hopefuls, the 2020 hopefuls, there's all this debate and shuffling about who's for Medicare for all and who's not and who supports whatever else is on like Bernie Sanders list of policy proposals that is kind of the new litmus test in the party. So that's what I would have worried about if somebody like Bernie or Kamala Harris had given like the official response. And his wasn't really I mean, it, it made allusions to policy and, and to things that Democrats broadly support. But the reason that it stuck out to me, when I I, I listened to uh, Ezra Klein and Joe Trippi look back on the Doug Jones win in Alabama, and one of the things that they said that they found in working for Jones that, that Trippi and his campaign staff found was there were a lot of people that are just sick of the chaos and the divisiveness. And it sounds kind of cliche, but those cliche feelings led voters in Alabama to send a Democrat to the U.S. Senate. And so I I would be wary of dismissing these cliche feelings as not being true. But the thing that stuck out to me was this message of like, it doesn't have to be like this. Politics doesn't have to be so exhausting so heart-wrenching, full of all these terrible, divisive choices. And I think that's sort of what Kennedy was saying, too, was like, it doesn't have to be this terrible. I think that that's sort of like the first thing, <laughs> the, the first thing that Democrats can capitalize on is like, we may disagree about a lot of things, and, and there's the Democratic Party is a pretty big tent, and there's a lot of fights over how big it can be or should be. 
but the one thing that I think every Democrat feels is that it doesn't have to be like this. And in that played really well in what Kennedy was trying to say. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably the route that we need to focus on uh, going in 2018 and 2020 is that it doesn't have to be like this. And this is a, an alternative to what we have been experiencing over the past decade, really. But with that, let's kind of sneak our way here into the second topic. So one of the main points of Donald Trump's speech was his four-pillar plan for immigration. Um, This proposal that he put out, uh, it allows all of the young immigrants who are brought here as children who who are Uh, in the dreamer category, but may or may not also have the DACA protection that was extended under the Obama administration. It allows all of them to gain citizenship through his proposal. Um, So that's a little bit shy of 2 million people that would gain citizenship under what he laid out. But, and so the price of that for Democrats and immigrant groups is to build the wall on the Southern border um, and hire more border patrol agents and the diversity visa lottery that Trump alleges randomly hands out green cards without any regard for skill or merit. That's not actually true, but that's what he alleges. And uh, to um, end the family unification uh, provisions in immigration law that basically allow people who gain their citizenship here in the U.S. to then sponsor family members to immigrate to the U.S. and then start their process to gain citizenship or, or some other legal immigrant status. Um, and so basically this sets up another one of these choices that Kennedy would probably say is a false choice of choosing between immigrants that are here now and future immigrants that would one day come. And the price from Trump's perspective is that we can help about 2 million immigrants that are here now find legal status, become full-fledged citizens of this country, but the cost of that is limited legal immigration down the line and removing the ability of families who would benefit from the DACA provisions to be reunited with other family members uh, who would potentially be able to immigrate under current law. This is something that immigrant groups, immigrant advocacy groups have been very uh, vocally opposed to these, these prices are way too high a price to pay. And they are furious at the idea that they would be used as bargaining chips between uh, Democrats and um, other undocumented immigrants. So as of the speech last night, and as of the proposal that Trump released, um, it's hard to see right now where the path forward is on the immigration debate. And there are really only a couple weeks left, about a week and a half left, until the government would potentially shut down again if Democrats force that over this issue. Right. And I think, honestly, that's probably where we're going to have to go because this is not nearly as hard as the Republicans are making it. Uh, It's quite clear that Trump has a view of immigration that is shared by a minority of his own party at least based on what they have said publicly. So I think at this point uh, we have to advocate of like a, you know, put up or shut up. And it's like, are you guys going to do this or not? Because this has been dragged out too long and it's too serious of an issue to keep kicking the can down the road. 
and as I advocated for last time we talked about this, it is well past time for this to get done, and I I understood procedurally why they might kick it down the can, you know, kick can down the road this one last time, but yeah, it's it's not it's not that time anymore. And at this point, if the Republicans refuse to keep their word and bring up the uh, straight up or down DACA vote or any other similar bill that would accomplish the goals that the Democrats laid out, then I think it's high time to just shut down the government until they do it. Now, this sets up a really interesting uh, and potentially really chaotic circumstance. So Mitch McConnell has pledged to if there is not a bipartisan agreement on an immigration bill in the Senate, then he's pledged to basically open up the amendments process, come up with some some kind of bill uh, that is that is the the bill that you introduce on this issue that is something that is amenable to both him and Chuck Schumer, um, and then would basically open it up for the Senate to have kind of this free for all with votes on amendments and try to basically on the floor in real time come up with a workable proposal and then vote on that proposal and send it over to the House. What's interesting about Trump's approach, which I think is pretty clearly dictated by like Stephen Miller's view of immigration, is they're setting up a choice over the value of immigration itself and kind of pinning on Democrats to defend whether or not immigration is good or bad. I don't know that that's the the debate that moderate Republicans want to have, but for the Steve Kings of the world, for the Tom Cottons and David Perdue's of the world, um, I think it's going to be the the amendment process and the free-for-all that, that comes on the floor of maybe the House or of the Senate and maybe the House too, um, is you're going to see amendments going back and forth where some of them are fully in support of immigration, see it as a, a good thing for our economy, for our country, good as a matter of human rights. And then you're going to see bills that are frankly racist and, and aren't that shy about doing that. It's just, it, it sets up this really interesting thing of you could actually see, I think the extremes of both parties be the ones that are fighting over this. Um, if you get to this open amendment process on a bill where there isn't an underlying agreement um, between the the moderate group of senators that is hoping to get to one before this point. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's better because at this point it's, you know, I, and this, this is when we need to just like have the little asterisk of like, why can't we just have a bill, go to a committee and work it out in committee and then have some amendments in the committee and then bring it to the floor and then have amendments there. So, you know, that would probably solve a lot of these problems, but for whatever reason, Mitch McConnell wants to run the Senate like a drunken LBJ and think that he can just like control everything from the floor. And that's not really how that works. Uh, Although I think he's actually relinquishing control. I mean, I think the reason that we haven't had a bill come up and, and the reason that we're in this situation is because him and Paul Ryan have had kind of iron fisted control over this debate and have not let, a smaller, more moderate bipartisan compromise come to the floor because it would pass both chambers. Uh, but they're, the Republicans are terrified of their base. And so the fact that that's what makes me kind of doubtful that this 
is going to be the outcome because Mitch McConnell is the one that gets to sign off on this at the end. But I heard uh, Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz on uh, Pod Save America the other day, and and he talked a little bit in more detail about the deal that they got. Um, and the deal that they got procedurally, the the value that Democrats see in it is that the original bill that gets brought up in the Senate uh, to begin this process is very important. If it's a super conservative bill, uh, Democrats have to defeat major parts of that bill on 60 vote votes, a whole bunch. Um, they have to knock out these provisions kind of one by one, and it's going to be like a big legislative slog that they don't think they can do. The reason that they're excited about this deal with McConnell is they got uh, assurance from McConnell that he would start with a bill that was amenable to him and to Chuck Schumer. Um, and so the fact that McConnell's going to kind of put a neutral bill out there and then let everybody go at it, um, I think that that's the part that could be could be really interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. It will be interesting. But to me, it just seems like they're trying to rig the process in some way, shape, or form, and that's why they're not going through the traditional avenues because it's quite clear that they i mean i mean really the only thing that this can be is the fact that there is a wide consensus on immigration that is politically counter to what their base and the president wants and so they basically do not want to bring that to the floor because as you said if they put out a moderate bill that walks and chews gum at the same time and handling the current immigrants that are in this country, as well as addressing the future immigrants to this country, that it would be very easy to pass it. And for whatever reason, they have decided to not do that and just let this issue, you know, remain in limbo, which has just been driving me up the wall, but also been threatening a lot of people's lives. And that to me is unacceptable. And while it is exciting on a policy front and it's exciting for the reality TV show that we've accepted American politics to be. I'm just tired. <laughs> I'm tired of it. And I just want them to get this done and to do it the right way and do the right thing because they all know what they need to do, except, you know, the, Con- the Tom Coggins and the David Perdue's of the world. So that that's, that's what I hope to see from this. And they just finally settle this thing. Well, you're definitely not the only one that wants it to get done. In a lot of the reporting that I've seen, um, you know, a lot of journalists are talking to dreamers. And while the activists are like really united in a hardline approach that a lot of the other provisions on legal immigration that the White House is offering, that a lot of those are unacceptable to activists. There's a lot of just, uh, you know, run of the mill dreamers who have lived for over a decade, some of them, um, with this unsettled status. And, and they're really unique in that as a generation and as a group of immigrants, the Dreamers are the only group of immigrants, I think maybe ever, to live in this country for a period like over a decade for, for a really significant portion of their lives and never have any sense of whether or not they could become full-fledged citizens and whether or not they're, whether or not their status would be something that they could rely on and be comfortable with for a long time. And so they're dealing with things like having to extend their lease for their apartment. Should they extend it or not? Will they lose a home that they bought? Will they be able to continue to stay employed? Um, 
they're dealing with sort of like real basic life stuff that it's going to be impacted by the outcome of this debate. And they're really torn about uh, what the right thing to do is because they, you know, the, the, the other potential immigrants that are, that are harmed by this proposal are people who are their family. And so it's like saying to you, Luke, like you have the ability to stay in this country, but your aunt and uncle or your cousins, um, or your adult siblings, if they were older, they'll never be able to come here because you'll never be able to sponsor them. Um, and so it's it's a tough choice for them to make, and I think a lot of them are ready for it to be over. But I think the good thing about this potential free-for-all and the choice that Trump has set up is that the parties, unless there's an agreement, the parties are going to end up on like opposite moral sides of this issue. And so if Democrats shut the government down for two weeks to say – to prove that they're on the morally right side of this issue. And then they open it back up and say, okay, we're taking this issue to the midterms. Then I think that that is fine with me too, because I think that most voters are on the sides of the dreamers. So, yeah. And I think at this point, unless they just bring it to the floor and vote on it, this is the only way to make the Republicans put up or shut up on immigration because most of them know what the right thing to do is and I think we have pretty heavy hesitation to vote for what Trump is proposing. So if they aren't willing to vote on it the right way, the way that they should, and being the majority governing party of this country at the moment, then we need to do what we can do to force them to do that. Well, and it's such a bad position for the Republicans to be in because they can't wiggle their way out of the moral difference between the two parties because Trump has made it so clear through all of his statements and actions that maybe he, maybe he cares somewhat about the narrow group of dreamer kids, but for non-white immigrants broadly, he clearly does not care. Um, And it's going to be really easy for Democrats during campaign season to just pin that on Republicans and say, here's a problem we've been dealing with for, decades and we've come to a solution that could get majority votes on the floor, but Republican leadership and the Republican president won't let it happen. Why won't they let it happen? Well, it's because they hate dark skinned immigrants. And like, that's just, it's, it's just putting the ball on the tee. Um, It's so easy for such an easy pitch for Democrats to hit out of the park. Um, So here's to hoping that they actually do it. But with that, well, let's move on to our third topic this week. Um, so we are coming up on February, which means we are coming up on uh, getting pretty close to the Democratic primary for governor between Stacey Evans and Stacey Abrams. Um, so we just kind of wanted to check in with some of the things that are going on in the Abrams and Evans camps and uh, talk about where this race is going as things hopefully start to heat up as we get close to the primary. Um, so, Luke, is there anything about either of the two campaigns or this race that has stood out to you in the last couple of weeks? Well, I think how quiet it's been is still something that I find very interesting and in that most of the time when we hear about either of these campaigns, it's not actually like coming from direct messaging of the campaign. Like, it's not like, oh, Abrams dropped a policy proposal or Evans dropped an and ag it's the response to them dropping something in like near silence is what we end up talking about um 
because a big story from last week was an ad that Stacey Evans released um, from her attendance at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta uh, on MLK Day, which has received a lot of deserved criticism for being one just kind of weird. It's a very weird ad. I don't really see like what the idea behind it was and whatever the idea was, was very, very poorly executed. But, uh, uh, the most generous explanation for the ad you could give is that it was like clearly pandering. And there's a lot of other, uh, far harsher, uh, analyses of the ad that have been out there as well. Um, and it's just was not, was not a smart ad. So, um, <laughs> I actually have a much milder. I, I can see you want to talk about this. Even. So, um, yeah, I mean, I thought that I did not think that the video was very good. I was trying to figure out, like you, I was like, I didn't even know that this video came out. It actually came out quite a while ago, um, but it didn't really make a splash until um, it got panned by some uh, people who clearly support Abrams and were looking to pick a fight on the internet about this ad. Um and so I, I went back and watched it and I was trying to figure out what it was. It's not even really an ad. It's not saying go vote for Stacey to be Evans fair, it was it was May, an Instagram whatever. video. Yeah, so it, was it wasn't it was not video. like an ad that they ran on TV. But yeah. like my thing is this, and I, I think we kind of talked about this offline a little bit, was just like the fact that like there's no message in it at all. It's just yeah. video. And it's it basically seemed like it was trying to do, especially since it was on Instagram, it was basically trying to do the same thing that like if you put eight pictures up at the same time would yeah. do, but in video form. That That is the impression that I got. Well, and it also, I, I had kind of the same impression because I, it, it seemed like it was sort of like a day in the life look at the Evans campaign because there isn't really narration to it. It's just sort of choppy video clips of her at the worship service at Ebenezer Baptist church. And I think this, this was on uh, MLK day, but I, I can't remember when exactly she was there. Um, and then the thing that everybody got upset about is that the final scene is her kind of looking off into the distance, standing in the pew. And then it kind of gets fades into um, a painting of Dr. King and so it was interpreted by people who were ready to pick a fight over this video as like her doing blackface or her superimposing herself on uh, onto Dr. King in a way of comparing herself to Dr. King. And I watched a few of the other videos and I actually think that it's just a really bad video editing idea because uh, Whoever is doing her videos has these like really obnoxious looking stretched out overlays on the video and they do this weird like fade in fade out stuff that isn't very good. And so I don't I'm not trying to give her an excuse, but it it, it seemed to me that it wasn't actually a real attempt to send a message. It seemed like a really dumb video editing technique. Um, and so I, I think that it it, it falls into this point where I think most people will see it, maybe think it was a little weird, maybe not really kind of get it. But if you are predisposed to dislike Stacey Evans, 
either because you're an Abrams supporter or because you're looking for reasons to not like Stacey Evans, then you can pretty easily read into this that it was either racist or an attempt to compare herself to Dr. King and very presumptuous of, of somebody who's just been a state representative. Um, but if you like Stacey Evans, then you could also very easily kind of read into this that this was just like an innocent mistake. Um, the thing that I found frustrating about it was that the reason that the video was taken down so quickly is not because they were trying to avoid whatever little fake controversy this is. Uh, They said that they took it down when the church reached out to them to say, hey, you were never given permission to film in our church to make an ad, to make a political ad. And because of the Johnson Amendment that ironically Trump has not gotten rid of yet, um, the, the churches are not allowed to take political stances and it puts the tax... Uh, status of the church at risk if candidates are making unapproved ads and implicitly sending messages that the church supports one candidate or another. And to me, not only should you ask permission in any church that you go into before you try to film a political ad, but you should definitely ask for permission before you go into Ebenezer Baptist Church and film an ad or even film whatever day in the life thing that this was trying to be. And so the fact that it's emblematic of sloppy campaign work and not being respectful of Ebenezer Baptist Church as a as a place of worship was the thing that I found frustrating about it. And that would have happened regardless of whether or not her bad video editor tried to superimpose Stacey Evans' face onto Dr. King's to to close out that video. Yeah, I mean, I think to sum up my feelings on this is like this is an example of political malpractice on a scale that I've rarely see on state or federal politics, just the whole, the whole thing. And I think that is the clearest explanation for it because, uh, I don't even want to know how much thought went into this because if I this think was very not, little, yeah, well, that's what I'm hoping because if any thought went into this and if anyone actually reviewed this ad and then said, yeah, that seems good, let's put that up, I would be deeply, deeply concerned. Um, and so I'm hoping uh, for the sake of us having a good primary in Georgia because, like I've said throughout, I like and respect both candidates a great deal and I would like to see them lay out their visions for Georgia in a way that is productive and that can strengthen whoever comes out of the primary. And right now I don't see that happening. And I see a lot of the rhetoric on both sides of the campaigns hitting areas I don't like um, because most of the time the supporters of Abrams are very, like you mentioned, they are finding reasons to not like Stacey Evans, but then her campaign responds in a way that is equally bad, which is whenever Evans makes a mistake, which her campaign has made a lot, in the same way that Abrams' campaign had made mistakes, but every time Evans' campaign made some mistake, they blame Abrams. And so, like, this is clearly, we both agree that this is a bad ag. Like, this is a bad ag, and whatever the message of it was, it was poorly executed and did not express anything, really, uh, about what the campaign was about. And in their response to people criticizing the ad, they blamed Abrams' campaign. And at a certain point, you have to like take responsibility for your campaign and ensure that 
it is being run well and that you're getting your message out and you can't just constantly blame your opponent for not being successful in your campaigning. I actually did not see them uh, blaming Abrams about that. So I, I didn't even know what that was about, but yeah, the, the, um, the fact that this, you know, th- this conversation, we've talked a little bit about this before that my fear was that there would be an incentive for one candidate or another to use the fact that one Stacy is black and one Stacy is white to try to sow racial divisions in this primary and that that would be very bad for the party and just like a morally bankrupt way to campaign and try to win a primary. Um, and this rhetoric never comes between either of the Stacys. It, I, I haven't seen either of them be the ones to actually try to push these kind of narratives about each other. It's always the surrogates. And this guy, Jason Johnson, that we've talked about before, he's a, a writer at The Root. He, he claims to be a journalism professor, um, but he doesn't tend to hold uphold journalism ethics very well, at least as far as I've seen. He wrote an article t- titled, White Candidate for Georgia Governor Basically Does MLK Blackface. And then he uh, blasts her about this ad. And I think he's the one that, has been, I think, pushing some of this irresponsible rhetoric. Um, and, and, and I, I think mean, that that's one of, one of the of articles the from the root. It might've been that one had also misquoted a state rep, uh, which uh, caused that state rep on Twitter to say, uh, to ask them to please lose her number. Uh, so there's been a lot of concerns about the reporting from that outlet in particular. But also, I would say uh, that's the uh, articles I've been seeing shared the most when people are talking about this governor's race. So that's, you know, can't be ignored, unfortunately. Wait, so who who did uh, who did this guy misquote? And, and is it the same Jason Johnson that we've been talking about? Yeah, it is. I, I just looked up the article again. Uh, they misquoted State Representative Darshan Kendrick, and she she posted it on on Twitter. So uh, I don't think she'll mind us <laughs> mentioning it. What did she say? Oh, uh, she said, "I'll just quote her that way. You know, we're we're being fully safe here." Uh, quote: "The the root are liars. I never said this about the Evans for Georgia video. Lose my number. I won't be speaking to you again. And damn it, spell my name right." That is hashtag Evans evangelist. <laughs> oh, gosh. So the you remember when we talked about the the response from the Evans campaign to an article that claimed that Evans was trying to shop around. Uh, I think it was whether or not Abrams was gay and like whether or not Georgia was ready for a gay candidate to be the Democratic uh, standard bearer. That was also an article written by this same guy who still claims to be a journalism professor and still makes like egregious journalistic errors and things that are not very, and things that are not defensible. Um, and he's the one that gets on the route and writes these articles in support of Stacey Abrams. I don't like, why, why do you want a surrogate who, and I, I shouldn't say he's an official surrogate, but he is somebody who is a cheerleader for her. I don't know if they're connected or not at all. Um, but he is someone who is a cheerleader for her in his columns and on Twitter. And he misquoted a Georgia state representative to talk about this video. 
like that's absurd. So I, that's the thing that it just bothers me that like this guy is, it is absurd, but it gets a lot of clicks and shares. It Cause does. like I said, in, in my circles, people are eating it up. So mm. it's very effective. Fake news. That's obviously not good. And that's not a reason to accept it. But I mean, it, the question is not why the question is like, what do we do about it? You know, that's, that's the real question. Cause why is very obvious. Well, from a journalistic perspective, I, I think it's totally in bounds to call out the errors and the fact that he doesn't he hasn't corrected some of these errors that he's made um, and and to say and and to look at his approach to race in this primary, his articles and the arguments that he is making are the reason that I have had apprehension about about the way that race would be played in this primary. And, and so it's commendable to both Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans that they haven't done this personally as campaigners. But the fact that he's misquoting state representatives, he's he's claiming to have quotes from people who occupy positions on the Evans campaign that the Evans campaign says doesn't exist, which was this volunteer coordinator that supposedly had given... Um, had spread some rumors about Stacey Abrams earlier last year. Um, this stuff is journalistically egregious and, and should not be acceptable. And, and I have no problem calling it out for what it is. I'm wondering why people are so hungry for that kind of coverage is, is sort of where I'm wondering from, from seeing it shared so much when it's obvious to me as someone um, who watches politics and reads politics when I see those articles like they're worse clickbait than the hill I mean I think the what I've been a little bit surprised about is that at least between the candidates there isn't really this big push to differentiate themselves from one another you know like part of the reason that Stacey Evans claims that she got into this race is she was so frustrated by the debate over the Hope Scholarship in 2011 and the fact that she claims Abrams gave too much to the Republicans and and harmed the Hope program too much. But what Stacey Evans has not done is laid out her vision of what the Hope program should be going forward and then like repeatedly asked Stacey Abrams if she agrees with that. And if she does agree with that as like a value statement that we should have a program that helps support people go to college, then why did she allow these cuts to happen during the 2011 debate and really pin her down on this like substantive difference between the two? But like Stacey Evans doesn't have her own hope proposal out there. And the Stacey Abrams recently tried to call out a vote on a gun bill by Stacey Evans to try to differentiate them too on that issue. And that wasn't something I think that they put out a press release and, and then it was reported on, but like, it was like one day it was here and the next day it was gone. And I don't know if anybody even knows about this difference between the two on the, on this gun bill. Um, it's like, they're just not being very aggressive to differentiate themselves with each other. And so for partisans who are super on the side of one candidate or the other to have somebody like Jason Johnson come in and, and say, Oh, Stacey Evans is clearly racist. That's something I guess that they can latch onto. Um, but I think it, it is good for us, um, to make clear that that's not the campaign that the two Stacey's are running. 
And so if you are super excited about Stacey Evans or Stacey Abrams and you share that excitement by uh, getting into some of this stuff about race, um, I don't think that you're doing Georgia Democrats a favor. Yeah, that is true. Uh, I really hope that as his campaign starts to heat up and we get a little bit closer that the campaign's messaging starts to break through a little bit more so that these outside articles don't have as big of an influence. Um, that being said, I just want to re- reiterate that that ag was terrible and really bad and deserves being criticized as much as it has been. Um, but I think that doesn't throw out the need for journalistic ethics in that. Yeah. I think you can criticize her decision to allow the ad to get released when they filmed in a place that they didn't have permission to film and for the people on her staff, not looking at that ad and, and not just being like, because it's not like they use the ad to like differentiate themselves from Abrams all that much. I don't really understand what the upside was. And so for somebody to not see the end of that ad and be like, eh, that could be a little tone deaf, a little insensitive, or or even if you don't believe it, maybe it could just be interpreted that way and say, eh, do we really need this? Um, I think that that, you know, the, the decision making and the fact that they didn't request permission to film in Ebenezer is, I think, reasons to question their judgment. Uh, but to throw around the fact that she's running around doing blackface uh, and to misquote a state rep in the process, I think it's pretty egregious. So if we if we both agree that this ad is a failure of judgment, does this in any way reflect her ability to be governor? Because that's sort of like the Dickersonian uh, thing we could bring up here, that campaigns are an example of how people will run the presidency. So in in that mindset, which I know you love to get into... Does does this reflect somehow of how her governor's administration would be? Because I, I say this because regardless of what you think of either of the candidates, it is quite clear that one of them is performing like a national campaign and on the level of one in Abrams' campaign because she's, you know, been on Samantha B's program. She's gotten a lot of national groups endorsements. And she uh, theoretically is probably raising a, a good deal of money, uh, from what I hear. And then you have Evans who has been focused on trying to get local groups, uh, to donate to her and to give her endorsements. She's gotten a lot of endorsements from the state reps. And so it's, it's a very strange thing, uh, that these two campaigns are operating just in like different time zones almost. So I, I I'd like to hear what you think about that. I don't know. I I would look for more of a pattern about judgment before I would say, before I would go so far as to say that this is emblematic of, of like how a governor Stacey Evans would be. I mean, people make mistakes and it's not even clear. We don't even know that Stacey Evans was the one that approved that ad. So yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's enough there to like make a broad like character judgment about this. I think absent other missteps like these that, you know, that that would be too sweeping a conclusion to come to. I think what it is emblematic of, though, is that Evans is aware that race is an issue. And so for her or whoever on her campaign to say that one of the ways we should show 
Evans being engaged is just by being in a black church. Um, and it doesn't need a lot of words. It doesn't need um, narration or to push a, me- push a message or to say anything about Stacey Abrams. All it needs is just visuals of her. I think it it demonstrates that they are sensitive to the idea that there are voters out there who will say, there are voters who are probably African-American who will say, I want the African-American candidate because she is African-American. So I don't, this to me is like the clumsiest way that they've tried to be cognizant of that and, and show that, that she is attractive. I mean, in my opinion, I mean, yeah, I mean, my opinion is that this is at least in this example, if not her, then members of her team are completely tone deaf on this issue and they don't understand how to address it because the the ad that they put out is only pandering like there's no way other way to interpret it now there's some ad you know some uh folks that i know that put out not similar ads but ads that used mlk for example on mlk day in georgia that had uh his speeches and some of the other and the the candidate speeches put side by side and did not hear the similar criticisms mostly because he was advocating for very very similar policies to MLK was so that that seems to not hit at home for me what you were saying i i just think that it's clumsy i don't know that it's even I mean, it's a little bit tone deaf because somebody didn't see the finished product and say, oh, whoa, that I don't think. That well, that's I mean, it's good. To, like the whole thing's tone deaf. Though. I don't the know whole that concept the idea, was tone deaf. I don't know that the concept was there's tone no deaf. Way, there's no way you do that ad without like it being a little tone deaf, I think. I think that you could have done an ad, Stacey Evans on MLK Day of Service Day doing some sort of a service project and 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 maybe right, doing a service project in conjunction. <laughs> that's not what they did. I'm saying, I'm saying like the concept of like having an ag at that church on that day, there's no way it's not pandering. I think the, yeah. I mean, I think that when you decide to do the ad, you have in to the go church, beyond that. When you decide to do the ad in the church, I think, I think that's where it's problematic. If you did it outside the church or there was like one quick scene of her in the church in the morning and then after church they go and they do a service event. And then during the service event, she steps to the side for a minute and, and talks about you know, MLK's commitment not only to racial justice but to economic justice and says, you know, these are principles that I believe in and that's why I want to be your next governor that to me isn't pandering it's doing something that i think is probably true about stacy evans is that she finds mlk and the things that he stood for to be admirable and and she would like to live out those values as a public official as a public servant i think you could have done the ad that way and it wouldn't have been pandering and you maybe even could have had a scene in the church or outside of the church if you'd asked permission and it would have been fine um but I, I don't think, I just think that it's like, it's hard to take a value judgment away, but this is definitely terrible execution. But yeah, I, I think that it uh, definitely was not the bright spot of the campaign. I, I hope that this campaign between the two Stacys comes back to their differences on the issues because there there are differences. And um, I think both candidates could benefit from from making those differences a little more clear. Um in keeping this race in bounds about 
policy things and in differences in leadership styles and even differences on their record. Uh, but accusing one candidate of doing blackface is not exactly the, uh, the campaign I was hoping for. Me either. Let's, let's hope, hope, uh, they can move on from it. And, uh, both campaigns start talking about policy and the stuff that matters. Uh, well with that, I think we're going to wrap this up for the week. Um, so we will talk to you guys again next week. We'll have a little bit more. We're going to dive back into the legislature next week about things that are going on. Bills are starting to move. Things are starting to heat up. Um, especially and around... next week we'll have financial disclosures. Oh, financial disclosures. I'm so excited about that. I um, dig we'll, it. We'll find out who's got the money. We'll talk to you next week. Bye guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.